0: All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. It's great to be in God's house this morning. Uh, If you're a guest, I'm just glad you're here. If you're a family member, I'm glad you're here. If you're watching online, I wish you were here, but I'm glad you're watching. It's a good time to be in God's house. Uh, We're in a series, and I guess we all know why we're here, right? Yeah, we're all here to fill out Connect cards. Not quite. Not really. Shameless plug. We're here because there's a hole in us and we know it. We're here because we tried to complete ourselves and we couldn't. We're here because despite our best efforts on our best day with everything going our way, we still fell short. And we knew something was wrong. And somehow, intuitively, by God, we knew that what was missing was Him. And we had to figure out how to reconnect. We had to figure out how to find that piece of us that, 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 sa- that takes care of the emptiness that we felt. So we come to a place like this and we think, I'll just learn, I'll just learn about Jesus and then I'll have enough information and I'll make a decision and I'll become a better person and I'll save myself and I'll fill that hole myself. And then we find out we're not really good at that. But as we learn about Jesus, we begin to learn that he is. And we begin to fall in love. And we find the very opposite to be true. We come here thinking that if I just do the right things, if I just work hard enough, if I just make myself a better person, then everything will be all right. And what we learn is, if I can just learn how to quit trying and quit trying to be in charge, if I could just surrender to God, Then he'll change me from the inside. He'll make me a new person. I need to work on surrendering, not doing. If you're a guest, I'm glad you're here. We've been in a series about spiritual fruit, and Jesus said, Look, my my believers, people who follow me, the world should look at them and they should look differently. If they're truly following me, if they're spending time with me, they should be sunburned. You should be able to look at their lives and know they've spent time with the Son of God. They should be different people because of what they've done in their fair time. They should show you things that are supernatural. They they should do things and you step back and you go, wow, that's not of them. That's God. Jesus said, look, you'll know it's from me because they're going to grow spiritual fruit. They're going to grow things in their lives because they trust me. I'm going to give them my spirit and you'll know they have my spirit because you'll see things in them that honestly they're not capable of. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we've said we want to learn how to be the the juiciest fruit we can be. We want people to look at us and know that we've been with Jesus. So we're going to continue this series today. I'm going to talk about something called self-control. Self-control. It's kind of an odd thing because it's impossible. At least with us. I heard a story once about a frazzled mother entering the grocery store. You've probably have seen this before where the child's in the basket and they're, they're going absolutely crazy and the mother's trying to figure out a way to calm them down and this woman's in line and she says, Emma, you can do this. We just need to get through a few things. Child continues to go crazy. Moments later, the child gets more upset and the woman says very calmly, okay, it's okay, Emma. Just, just, just a couple more items. The child at one point becomes absolutely hysterical. She's in the checkout. Mom took a deep breath, and Emma, hold it together. We'll be in the car in a few minutes. In the parking lot, a woman came up to her and said, excuse me, but I couldn't help notice in the store. I just want to compliment you on how patient you are with little Emma. You have so much self-control. The mother laughed and said, well, thank you, but the truth is I'm Emma. Self-control. Edmund uh, Hillary, who climbed Mount Everest, first man to conquer Mount Everest, was asked by an interviewer about his passion for climbing mountains. He said, it's not the mountain that we conquer, it's ourselves. It's not the mountain we conquer, it's ourselves. Peter the Great of Russia Is quoted as saying, I've been able to conquer an empire, but I have not been able to conquer myself. Solomon, a wise Jewish king, said in Proverbs, A man without self control is like a city broken into and left without walls. There has never been, and I think never will be, a truly great life without someone who is in some form of control. But what's self-control? I mean, he says the the fruit of the Spirit is self. What what is that exactly? We tend to think of self-control as self-discipline. Having more power to resist, having the willpower to be stronger, overcoming our own desires because we've decided that we have enough willpower, strength, whatever you call it, to control ourselves. And it's funny because by definition, that means we know we're out of control. You see, you don't need self-control unless you admit, hey, I got areas where I'm not in control. It's it's a conscious choice in the face of temptation, a strong resolve. Uh, I'm going to go through enough training to be able to resist. I'm going to be someone who has mastered their temptations and develop control over them. I'm going to be somebody who's in total control. We hear self-control and we think self-discipline. I need to be in control of myself. I just need to master temptation. Our attempts at self-control are a lot like whack-a-mole. Remember that game, whack-a-mole, where something pops up and you slap it down, and then as soon as you slap it down, something else pops up? That's what it looks like to me for somebody who's trying to control themselves. The more they try to control themselves, the faster the things pop up and the harder it is to keep them down to where no one can see them. We approach temptation and we try to whack it when it pops up. And it can always be just exhausting. And the bad news is it always fails. Eventually we can't keep up. Our passions, our desires, our 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 needs pop up faster than our ability to suppress them, and truthfully, we're not really good at whacking them when they show up. Too many Christians are exhausted and disillusioned because they're trying to master their temptations, trying to obtain and maintain self control. It's very fleeting. You think you have it for a minute, and then it's gone. The world's definition of self-control is really self-discipline, the ability to overcome temptation. You see, that's how the world approaches every problem that we face as humans. And honestly, there's no other option if you exclude God. I mean, if you think about it, if you take away the possibility or the influence or the power of God, then all you're left with is self And so the only control you can possibly have is self-control. We think if we can just control the temptation. So we go to programs like AA. We go to programs where they teach you, hey, next time you have that urge, you're always gonna have that urge. You'll never change. You'll be that way every day. The next time you have that urge, just call your buddy or figure out a way to stop it you got to get stronger overcoming your temptation. James 1, 13, 14. But each person is tempted. Think about that. Each person, every one of us is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, why are you tempted? Because you desire something that you don't have. Who tempted you? You did. Each person is tempted when he's lured, when he's drawn his attention to. It's like a fish that sees something go by. When you have that temptation, you're enticed by your desire and you're drawn to it. You're lured to it. By what? By your desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. I love the way he says that. Desire, when it's conceived, in other words, when you first think about it, you go, ah, "I'm not going to do that." But then you start percolating on it, start thinking about it. Wait a minute, that maybe that would work. Maybe I could keep that quiet. Maybe I could do that. It starts to conceive. It starts to build. It starts to get delivered. The temptation that came from your desire is now moving to an action. And that action brings forth sin. Sin is real simple. You've decided to do what you want to do instead of what God said to do. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Notice that there's growth in this passage. It's conceived. It builds and then it brings death. It's really a reflection of our life. We're conceived. We, we build as sinful people, and then comes death. Sin always follows this pattern if you don't have, make the right choice. But don't miss the pattern. I preach on this all the time. You're probably sick of hearing it. Desire, temptation, choice, sin, death. Know that. Desire, temptation, choice, sin, death. Go to any sin in your life. It started like that. You didn't fail because you lacked self-control. The failure point was not controlling your desires. Does that make sense? If you take the example of the person who drinks too much, The problem is not that they need more self-control. It's not that they need more willpower. What they need is a God to change them into somebody who doesn't desire alcohol. And to refuse to believe that that's possible, translated, you'll always be an alcoholic, denies the very God who says, no, that's not how this works. I came to bring life. I came to free people from bondage. I came to set the captives free. I'm the God of the universe, what's too hard for me? You don't think I can overcome alcohol in your life? You don't know who I am. Because Jesus came to make you a new person, not a new improved you. The world says I'll be self-controlled, I'll focus on the temptation, I'll stay away from the bars, I'll stay away from my buddies who drink. Those are great things, I'll do it myself. And when I'm tempted, I'll have enough discipline resist. And I always ask them, how's that going for you? Is that working? Because in my experience, it didn't work for me. It's never worked for me. Me trying to control myself is a joke. The worldview self-control is motivated by beating down a desire. And we almost buy the lie that we have to have the desire. We don't believe that the mole can stop coming up. We just got to get better at whacking it. Just beat it down, you see, because our success depends on us, not God. Thus, we are limited in what we can achieve on our own. We see people say, anybody can do it with enough willpower. Problem is, we're not all named will. Will. We need God's power. That's a really bad joke. We need God's power. And we do pretty good at our own willpower until the desire gets too strong. It builds in us. You ever notice that? You may be able to put it off today, but tomorrow just seems bigger. Seems like it's growing. Seems like it's conceiving. Seems like it's building in us to the point that what the willpower we had yesterday is not enough for today. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into, what was it? Temptation. How does he lead you? How does that work? He changes your desire. Lead us not into temptation. Change the person I am. You see, we're all, we've all proven the human experiment is that we've all failed at controlling our desires. And at some point, our desire, the temptation becomes too big and we can't resist. We talk about self-control, but every one of us, if we really were honest, know that we can't control ourselves. Fortunately, God doesn't leave us in our mess. He says, look, when you surrender to me, I'm going to bring something from the throne into your life. I'm gonna bring the spirit of God into you and there's gonna be a self-control you've never experienced before. There's gonna be a self-control that comes from me, from the spirit of God, and it never fails. You see, when you think of self-control, we often think about controlling ourselves. When you read about self-control in the Bible, I want you to just immediately change it To Christ controlled. That's what the biblical sense of self-control is in the Bible. I'm controlled by Christ. The best image that I can think about it's not someone who's in control of themselves, it's someone who's surrendered to, to God. I think a lot about horses mostly because I'm from the great state of Texas, I think. Um, Horses are big animals. Have you ever been around a horse? They're scary. They're huge. They could decide at any point to stomp any human that gets on them. They could. They're that big. They jump around. They have a mind of their own. The wild stallions in particular have to be broken before they will surrender to the person who's going to lead them. Let me repeat that and see if it resonates. The wild stallions who wanna do their own thing, who lack control, have to be broken so they will surrender to their master. And once that happens, this humongous beast that can stomp anybody works in synchrony with its human master. And it's incredible. It's like the two become together. They're they're focused on the same goal. That horse can accomplish what he never could accomplish without the leader of his master. It's like he experienced, you almost look at that horse. That horse is smiling. I don't know how they smile, but that one's smiling. Because he's doing what he was created to do under the guidance of his master, who's leading, guarding, protecting, guiding And all that horse has to do to smile like that is surrender. Because at any point, that horse can go, nope, I'm out. I'm gonna go do my own thing. The power, the energy in perfect sync working together, broken and at the same time surrendered. Broken and at the same time excelling. Broken and at the same time experiencing life in a new way under the control and power for us of God. I want you to picture you, your life. And God's got great plans for you. He's gonna lead you places. You're gonna jump over stuff. You're gonna do things you never thought were possible. You're gonna do supernatural things, but you gotta be broken. You gotta surrender to the master who wants to guide you. We are that horse, broken, surrendered, and smiling big time because we have achieved, we have surrendered, we have received that which we never thought was possible. God says, no mind can conceive, no eye has seen the things that I have for those who love me. Now notice that when these horses surrender, do you notice what's not in her hand? A whip. Hmm. That horse doesn't have to be whipped to move. That horse is connected in purpose and soul with its master. You don't need to be whipped into shape, you need to be surrendered into relationship. The biblical self control is not about temptation, it has nothing to do with temptation. It's about the desires that precede that temptation. It's not something you choose; it's somebody you are. How can I do that, knowing that I'm under the surrender of my Lord? It's interesting when people come to Christ. They say, "You know what? I didn't stop deciding to do things. It's just I didn't want to do them anymore. Something happened. I don't know. Just changed." Christ centered people, Christ controlled people, they don't focus on the temptation. Remember, desire, temptation, choice, sin, or wait, there might be another option. Maybe the option is desire, choice, temptation, God, life. It's not a sin to be tempted, Jesus was tempted. But in that temptation, he chose God. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We all get tempted. The question is, how do we think we're going to overcome the temptations in our life that lead to death? Some people think, well, I'll just come to church. I'll serve. I'll be a better person. Uh, not necessarily. Others say, you know what? I really think if I just surrendered to God, those desires would change. Some people think that Jesus just had this amazing human power to overcome temptation. Of course, he never sinned. He was perfect. He. He had this supernatural ability. No, that's not what the Bible says. Scriptures say he was human in every way, but he surrendered to the Father in every step. Don't miss this. He came to show us that it's possible. It's possible to live your life so focused on the Father that your desires surrender to his. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you. As we surrender, Our desires align with his. Also note that it's never the other way around. It's not like God goes, I never thought of that. It's a great idea, Frank. I'll tell you what, I'll change the plans I've had for all of eternity and we'll do it your way. No. When you go to be with God, you've already surrendered. The answer is yes, Lord, what do you want to do? He's not asking your opinion. He doesn't need it. And by the way, he already knows it. He, he wants surrender. His temptations were real, but his desires were stronger. Being Christ-controlled means that we've surrendered to the Spirit, and we allow the Spirit to change our desires. We put God's desires above our own the more we give ourselves to him the more our desires become like him in other words the deeper roots we develop the juicier our fruit become people see in us a self control that's not from this world they see god into us and because they see god in us they're drawn not to us to him I want to turn to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. I think we can learn a lot deal about Cain's inability to control himself. Genesis four, three. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. And people go, well, that's unfair, God. They both brought you stuff. And one of them you were happy about and one of them you weren't. What's the problem? One brought leftovers. One brought the very best. One brought the firstborn, the firstborn, the first fruit, the fat portions, the very best of the best that he had. He said, God, this is yours. And then the other one brought an offering. Now God's not done anything other than point out to Cain this is a learning moment. This is an opportunity to be taught. We often talk about giving God your very best. Abel brought the first fruit. Cain brought leftovers. Do not bring your leftovers to God and expect him to bless them doesn't deserve what you have left over. When Cain was realized, when he realized that God was displeased, he didn't think, oh, I better figure out how to please God. He got angry at God. What's wrong with you? I brought you something. Four lessons about self-control that I want to go over today that we can learn from this story. The first thing, when we start thinking about, okay, how do I Become Christ controlled, the very first thing you need to do is you need to stay alert. Stay on watch in your life for areas of your life that are getting out of control. You know when it's happening. You start having that desire to whack a mole, something's popping up in your life. You need to be aware of your weaknesses. Each of us struggle in different areas. We all have desires, some stronger than others. What tempts me may not tempt you. What I think is wonderful, you may not think is so wonderful because you don't desire it. We have different levels, different areas of vulnerabilities. The first thing we got to do is be alert. The minute we feel upset or downcast, we have to be alert. 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled and alert. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you see those words? Be self-controlled. Be Christ-controlled and stay alert. Walk in sync with God and stay alert. Live by the Spirit of God and stay alert. Alert. Let me challenge you to do something this week. Set aside some time and plan an assault on you. It's a great thing to do. Answer this question If you were Satan, how would you destroy you? Because he's thinking about it. Why aren't you? If you plan any attack on anything or you plan your defense, you have to think about what's it, how they're gonna attack. If I were Satan, how would I destroy me? Where is my weakness? What desire have I not turned over to God? What tempts me? What does that temptation look like? If I was Satan, what would I tempt me with? What's most likely gonna get me to turn my eyes off of God and towards myself. What is it? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it greed? What, what is it that Satan's dreaming up right now to destroy me and my family? What is it? Is it coming in a bottle? Is it coming in a syringe? How would I destroy me? No one fights a battle without knowing their areas of weakness, without knowing where they're vulnerable to attack. Every Christ follower must know the areas of their life where they're vulnerable to temptation. They must establish alerts or alarms in that area of their life. We have to be alert, we have to be aware of our weaknesses because let me just tell you, Satan almost no, wait, never, almost never does a surprise attack. I can look at people's lives, including my own, and go, I know where Satan's going to attack them. I know exactly what's going to happen. I know what she's going to look like. I know what they're going to say. I know how this works. I can see it. Usually, it's not a surprise attack. Usually it's just a small number of events, one after the other. So you don't even realize you're about to fall off the edge. You just keep going a little bit further, one more. You don't know you're doing it, right? Because you're focused on you. And Satan's going, I'll just get to take one more step. It won't, nobody will know, you won't know, I'll just take another step. It's not like a surprise attack, it just happens slowly and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I just fell off the edge. How did that happen? I'm so surprised. That seemed to come out of nowhere. And everybody around you is going, no, it didn't. You've been making bad decisions for the last three months. What are you talking about? There are multiple opportunities to turn back. You just got to stay alert. You got to listen to God because he's yelling at you. This is not what I want. Genesis 4:6: the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? God's like, I haven't done anything to you. I just pointed out that you gave me leftovers. Why are you angry at me? You're the one that gave me leftovers. Translated, Cain, why are you pouting? What are you you doing? This is supposed to be a learning moment. You see, some people explode when they're angry. Other people sort of just stew and turn internal, withdraw into a shell of anger. If Cain had been more alert, more aware of what he was feeling, God had a lesson for him. Leads us to our second point. You stay alert, you search your heart. You see, many people think they lose self-control because they didn't try hard enough to do it right. But that's not why. Our hearts are deceitful. Our ability to try to control them will only deceive us a little bit longer. Eventually the truth comes out. That's why we need the Spirit of God. God's telling Cain, search your heart. It's not that you brought me leftovers. I want you to explore why you brought me leftovers. I want you to think about what led you, what desire did you have to hold on for yourself and not give me your very best. I don't need your very, I already have it. What I want is your heart. He's asking Cain, can you please stop looking at the temptation to hold on to your stuff and go back to the desire? What's wrong with us that you have a desire to not give me your best? I've given you my best. What's wrong? Why are you acting this way? He's inviting Cain into self-exploration. And that's where we need to be when we can't seem to change our temptations either. God, help me understand my desires. He says, Cain, why are you so angry? Examine yourself. Look inwardly, there's something to learn here, he says. Think about the discussion they could have had if Cain had only answered God. We make this mistake all the time. The Holy Spirit says, slow down, spend some time with me. Let's go over what's going on. But instead of learning what God wants to teach us, we get angry at God for questioning us. What do you mean? That's not good enough for you? What's wrong with you? And the whole time God's going, no, the problem is you. I'm trying to help you understand your flesh nature. I'm helping you understand why you need to die to these things. We love to challenge God with questions. But we hate being questioned by God. We have to learn from Cain's mistake. Almost every time a lesson needs to be learned, it starts with examining your heart and listening to what God says about your heart, not you. You. If Cain was honest, he would have said, you know what, God, I'm a selfish person. And I want to be my own God. I care more about me than I actually do about you, my brother, or anybody else. The truth is, I'm a pretty selfish person, God. And I brought you leftovers because I wanted the best and I didn't want to give them up. If Cain had taken his emotions to God, to process them and learn from them, God would have met him there. He would have received God's gift of self-control. He would have grown in the spirit. Abel would be alive and Cain would have received God's blessing and his name for the rest of all mankind wouldn't be associated with selfishness. Cain chose not to answer God's question, but God tries to teach him anyway. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What God's saying is, look, if you'll just work with me on your desires, if you'll just come with me into the quiet place, and let's process what's wrong in your heart, will you not be accepted? Yes, you will. I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to change you. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to let you see that there's something in you that you need me to fix for you. But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, if you don't come into that quiet place and deal with the desires with me, right outside that door is temptation. And that's the way to death. It's going to destroy you. It's trying to get Cain's attention. This message hasn't changed in thousands of years. Sin is crouching at the door, and God is always trying to get our attention. There was a TV show when I was younger called When Animals Attack. Wild animals like a tiger or lion, raised from a cub, treated like a house pet. You know where this is going, right? They're wonderful little pets until they attack and kill their owners, and that makes a great TV show, I guess. Those owners who happen to survive say something like this "Uh, Wow, killer never acted like that before. What happened? and you just want to shout at the TV, killer's a tiger, killer's a lion. How could you not see that killer's a lion? Attacking and killing is part of his nature. He's doing what God created him to do. He's doing what lions do. Do you know what our nature is? Our sin nature, our human nature, it's an obstacle to self-control. It's an obstacle to Christ's control. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't have any ability to control ourselves any more than that lion can control himself. The only person that can battle sin effectively is the Holy Spirit. Without the spirit of the one who has defeated sin, you and I remain helpless to experience true life change and true Christ control in our lives. Only those who trust Jesus and what he did for us receive the Holy Spirit. Everybody else is dominated by their sin nature. All of us at one point were dominated by our sin nature. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that allow us to have more control. Galatians 5, 7. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for those These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the battle. If we've not surrendered to Jesus, there's no spirit of God to oppose the desires of the flesh. That's why, and please hear this, that's why we can't expect and judge people who don't know Jesus to live as though they do. People who don't know Jesus are doing what is natural for them to do. They are in the flesh and they don't know it. We can't look at them and go, look how horrible they are. They're sinning. We can't look at them and say, you don't have a place in my church. Because they don't know God. And I often wonder, which is worse in a church? A bunch of people who don't know God acting on what they don't know or a bunch of people who do know God and aren't living out what they should know. Hmm. We can't expect and judge people who don't know Jesus to live as though they do. It's interesting in the 10 Commandments, I'll just go on a tangent. Do you know what the first thing it says in the 10 Commandments? I am the Lord your God. In other words, these are the commandments for those who acknowledge I'm their Lord. They're not commandments for everybody else. I am the Lord, your God. God says, look, I wanna make sure you know the relationship before I give you the rules. As humans, we always wanna know the relationship before we have to follow rules. How many times have you turned to somebody and said, who are you to tell me what to do? What you're saying is we don't have a relationship. And because we don't have a relationship, you're not allowed to speak into my life. Relationship always precedes rules. If you're a parent and you see somebody else disciplining your child who doesn't have a relationship with them, mama bear strikes. Who are you to tell my child that? I'll tell them. If they need to know I'll tell them. I have the relationship. Children are far more likely to listen to the person in their life they have a relationship with than some random person. Relationship always follows rules. God says, before I give you a single commandment, I want to remind you, I am the Lord your God. Therefore, do these things. If you were the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Don't be surprised, tigers are tigers, lions are lions, fallen humans are fallen humans being human. They don't like the things of God. They don't like the people of God. But God loves us long before we loved him. He tried to warn Cain but Cain does something very stupid that goes to our third lesson we're gonna learn. The third lesson is obey God's warnings no matter how you look at it, it still comes back to your desire to obey. God wanted Cain to know that he's about to make a terrible mistake. God allows sin in our lives to get us to a point of choosing him or Satan. It helps us see where we're at. Friend comes by and says, hey, you you seem to be drinking more. Somebody, else, you have the money to gamble like that? You seem very close to your secretary. You know he's married, right? But we immediately rationalize the warning. I don't drink too much. We're just celebrating. We're not hurting anybody. I don't always get even when I gamble. I'll stop. It's not hurting anybody. It's my money. We just enjoy working together. She's just a great help to me at the office. It's not hurting anybody. Yeah, yeah, and I know his wife. We're all really great friends. It's not hurting anybody. I'm Italian. I always explode when I get angry. It's not hurting anybody. We ignore the warnings, and our decisions lead us into trouble. Many start praying, God, get me out of this. And it's funny that once things start to fall apart, all of a sudden we're all ears for God. We weren't there during all the warnings. But when it all falls apart, all of a sudden we're spiritual. As disaster looms on the horizon, as God begins to work and to show us what's going on, we start playing let's make a deal with God. God, if you get me out of this, I'll become a missionary. I will. And then we dodge the bullet we think, man, that was close. Second chances are God's megaphone to get you to listen to what he's trying to say in the first place. It's a wake-up call. Let's look at the specific warning that he gave Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Will you not be accepted? It means, will you not be lifted up? Will you not be exalted? Will you not be praised? Sin is crouching, waiting to kill you. It has a desire for you, but we have a problem. You see, everything depends on our view of sin. When God says sin is right outside that door waiting to destroy you, some of us hear that verse and we think about a kitty cat ready to pounce. Sin doesn't seem to be that big a deal. It's not that offensive. It's not that dangerous. It's a little sin. I can do what I want. It's no big deal. Sin's couched at the door. Yeah, it's going to pounce, but it's not going to hurt me. I'm going to be okay. Others perhaps have a little more respect for the sin in their lives, and they have a different picture when they walk out the door. They They see sin crouching at the door ready to attack. You know what I think God sees? I think God sees this. I think God, when he says sin is crouching at the door ready to destroy you, he meant it. This is not something minor in your life. God is warning you and me, and we better pay attention because that thing can destroy everybody. Satan has been trying, planning, thinking about how to bring you and me down. How to bring this church down, how to bring us down as our marriages and our relationships. And he's crouching at the door, waiting for an opportunity, just waiting for you to not deal with your desires with God and walk out that door with temptation because he knows he's won. You and I have no chance against sin on our own, we have no chance we may not even see the danger that's around us. We live our lives constantly with danger, Satan, sin, surrounding us and looking for opportunity. The only chance to control the sin that destroys us is the power of God. If we see sin as a kitten... We think I need to control myself. And if I fail, I'll deal with the consequences. But when we see sin as the lion that it is, we realize this is too big for me. I can't go out that door. I I don't have the power, no, I can't go out there. I'll I'll get destroyed out there. I need you, God, I need you to help me in my desires because I don't wanna have to walk through that door. Translated God lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. God I want to stay here with you in this place learning what I need to learn becoming the person you want me to be changing my desires because I don't want to walk through that door of temptation knowing what's on the other side. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Let's go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Look at the pattern. Trust established, then began deception. Cain had his desire. He lied about his intent. When he lost self-control, he lies and he hides his motives. We all hide empty bottles or internet histories or manipulate those who trust us or we put money in a separate account or... We hide the pills, all evidence of our lack of self-control, but we just try to hide it. Cain, lacking self-control, lacking Christ-centered control, killed his brother. And then he goes on to discredit his relationship with him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Now, a lot of people misinterpret this verse to imply that we're not responsible for each other. What he's saying in the Greek is, do I keep his calendar? Am I supposed to know where he is every minute of the day? I don't know. No two parts of his response. A lie, I don't know, and a rejection of God's authority. Am I my brother's keeper? He's your problem. God, you're wrong. You don't have a right to ask me this. You don't have that authority. His response is passive-aggressive, and passive-aggressive responses always come from anger, and they always come from a rebellious heart. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to know where he is? Not am I to control him, but rather am I to keep up with him? And that leads us to the fourth and last point. Consider the consequences. Cain didn't think about the consequences of what would happen if he killed his brother. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God pronounces a curse on Cain for his behavior. You see, we don't think enough about the consequences of our actions. We really don't. We need to fast forward a bit and look at the alternatives. What will my life look like when this is discovered? What will happen to the people I care about? How is this going to impact my family when the truth comes out? Well, we don't think about the consequence of the decisions that we're making. The line of Abel was wiped out and cursed forever. Cain becomes, a, um, so the line of, uh, Cain becomes a wanderer, a fugitive. Think about the grief he caused Adam and Eve. A lack of self-control can define you forever. But here's the other thing. We don't spend enough time thinking about the positive consequences of doing things God's way. The things that will happen when we are God honoring, self-controlled decisions, all of our worries and anxieties go away. We don't spend the rest of our life trying to cover it up, we spend the rest of our life celebrating. John Wooden was a legendary basketball coach, devoted Christ follower. He died 11 years ago at the age of 99. 10 NCAA championships in 12 years, seven in a row. Greatest basketball coach ever. He once won 88 games in a row. Coach of the year six times. He's well known for being calm no matter what happens. Nothing ever faced him. No matter how bad the refs called the game, no matter what the player did, he always manifested self-control. He was once asked, how do you stay so calm without emotion? He told the reporters, I have the same emotions that everybody else has. I get angry, I get frustrated, in fact, I get furious. But rather than let those moments define and control me, I've learned to consider the consequences. To think about what will happen if I lose control. The damage that could be done if I let my anger control me. Here's what I've learned, he says. When my emotions build, I reach into my pocket and I feel a small silver cross that I carry with me in my pocket. I remember that cross, and basketball seems far less important. With my hand on that cross, I surrender to the power of the one who died on it. And he controls what I cannot. Jesus is the perfect model of self control, he says. One of Jesus' most famous prayers is a prayer of self-control. The Garden of Gethsemane, praying for God's will, praying to overcome the temptation of what Satan wanted him to do. Satan wanted him to take control, to not do what the Father wanted. Jesus chose self-control. He chose the Father's will over his. There's a moment on that Friday morning when Jesus is in front of Pontius Pilate He's been beaten mercifully. The cross is only hours away. It's one of the most amazing moments of self-control. He had all the power in heaven and earth available to him. He's in the most desperate moment any human has ever faced. Almost all have turned against him. He is innocent, and yet he's been beaten beyond recognition. His experience is every emotion to the extreme. Rejection, anger, frustration, pain, suffering. Every weapon is available to him, both physical and spiritual. And the one he chooses is silence. Jesus, in a critical moment, chose silence because that's what the Father wanted. The prophet Isaiah said that would happen thousands of years before. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that's before it shears. His silence. He opened not his mouth. He could have said things that would save him. He could have called an army down. But he remained silent until Pilate spoke. And Pilate began to challenge his God. Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In that moment, Jesus decides to speak. Beaten, wounded, bleeding, suffering. He locks eyes with Pontius Pilate and he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Translated, I want you to understand, Pilate, I want you to understand something extremely important that I want you to never forget. I'm giving my life up, you're not taking it. And there's a huge difference. I'm choosing to willingly lay down my life. Jesus has enormous self-control because he's focusing on what the Father wants. He said exactly what the Father told him to do to get to that cross. It is a defining moment in human history. It is the reason he came for us. It is the essence of sin as man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Jesus put himself where you and I deserve to be so that one day we could be where we don't deserve to be. He created a way where you and I could be with him. It allows passage from our sin to the throne of God. You can't get to God without trusting in what he did on the cross. You just can't. And because we trust Jesus to be our bridge, our pathway home, he's promised to give us his Holy Spirit, And he said we would know it because we'd see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me ask you this. Are there any of those nine things that you don't want more of in your life? If God promised to pour out all nine of these things on you in the next week, would you be disappointed? If you could add to your spiritual life, wouldn't this be what you want? Imagine your life one year from now. God's been working through you. You've been abiding with him. You devoted yourself to spending every free moment you had in the word praying with him and you exploded in love. You had so much joy you can't stand it. Your life is crazy but somehow you have this enormous peace. You don't know where it came from. You used to get really frustrated with other people but now you have this weird patience. You replaced your selfish thoughts with kindness and goodness. You used to have a fear of everything, but now you're not tied up in anxiety trying to control everything. There's this peace welling up inside of you. And you have this enormous faith. You don't even know where it came from. Your once harsh exterior is being replaced with gentleness towards other people. You have areas of your life that have always been out of control, and yet somehow now... Those desires don't seem as strong and it seems like God is controlling the urges. The more you surrender, the more self-control, the more Christ control you seem to have. Can you imagine what would happen in your relationships? Can you imagine how it would transform your marriage, your parenting, your friendship? Think about how your coworkers would change when they're around you. Think about what it would look like in your future to build on that every year by year by year. Think about how differently you would look back at your life from your deathbed, knowing that you poured out all the fruit you could pour out. Now imagine that this transformation is not just in you, it's in all of us, every one of us. Every person in your church family. Imagine if Remnant began exploding in love, expressing joy, all great peace, abounding in patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you couldn't stop this little church. What if we were not only fruitful, but we were so full of the Spirit of God that everyone could see Him in us? That when we come together, His power and presence is so strong that people feel it when they get out of the car in the parking lot. Everyone could see these things pouring out of us and they know they don't come from us. So for the next few moments, I'm going to have the altar open. I'm going to ask the band to come up and play. I don't know what business you need to do with God. I don't. I don't presume to know. I just want to make sure when you leave here, You're not in a place where you're just imagining what your life would be if those things happened. But you do business with God to the point that they become a reality in your life. Jesus said, if you abide with me, these things will happen in your life. It's guaranteed. If they're not happening in your life, you and I are not abiding enough. It's that simple. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will produce much fruit. Jesus can use this church to change the world. But we got to let him change us first. Let's pray. God, as we process with you in the next few moments, there are people in this room that maybe have been giving you lip service. Maybe they've been pretending in their heart of hearts. They know they haven't been spending time with you. And maybe they need to come back home. There are other people, God, who have honestly been trying to control themselves their whole life and have never, ever heard a message about God and what he promises to those who love him. God, I pray for those right now who are asking themselves, could this be true? God, would you meet them in that moment? Only you can draw people to you. Holy Spirit, move in this room and draw people to you. For others, we know there's an area in our life, a desire that we just refuse to give up. Maybe because God, honestly, we have given up on you changing it. We've been praying for you to change us, but we haven't been abiding. We've been praying for you to change it, but we haven't been surrendered. God, we surrender to you right now. Every area of our life, everything in our life, because we want deep roots that produce deep fruits. God, work in our hearts right now, break through our arrogance, our pride, our self-sufficiency, and put us on our face at the cross where everything changes. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name.